following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. While we were in Bethlehem, we visited the Church of the Nativity, which is the main place that commemorates the place where Jesus was born. So went into this church and you go down this winding spirally staircase down to the basement of the church and there's this kind of dingy, dark, dimly lit area with candles and there's a star on the ground. And that commemorates apparently the exact spot where Jesus was born. Of course, nobody knows for sure. How can you possibly know the exact spot where Jesus was born? But this is kind of, it's sort of a memory site. It's a traditional site where pilgrims have gone for, for thousands of years to remember, to commemorate that Jesus was born here in the city of Bethlehem. It's interesting, though, being in that church, the Church of the Nativity, because a few years before we were there, that church was part of a combat zone. It's kind of a reminder of what a troubled part of the world Bethlehem sits in. Uh, during one of the Palestinian uprisings, I think 2005 or six, a whole lot of Palestinian militia and militants barred themselves in that church. And it was besieged by the Israeli army. A lot of people lost their lives. And this church, there's kind of this irony that this church that's supposed to commemorate the birth of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, uh, becomes caught up in this war-torn battle between Israelis and Palestinians that's just been going on for a long, long time and shows no sign of, of ending. Uh, and it was going on while we were there. Israel and Hamas were having another go at each other in the middle of last year. And in some ways, not much changes in Bethlehem. Uh, even going back 2,000 years to when Jesus was born, it was still a troubled place. It was still a troubled part of the world. There was still a lot of tensions and turmoils and conflicts swirling around Bethlehem, swirling around Israel, because this, this city within this country of Israel was within the shadow of this huge, vast empire the Empire of Rome, one of, the, one of the biggest empires the world has ever seen, the Roman Empire. And you don't see that in the nativity sets, do you? You don't, you don't see that and you don't hear that in the Christmas carols and we don't picture that to be part of the story. But the Roman Empire casts a huge shadow over the Christmas story. It influences and impacts the way that story is told. And the gospel writers like Luke are very conscious of the presence of Rome as they're telling the story. You can tell that by the very first words Luke says at the beginning of this chapter. Let's have a look at that. Beginning of chapter 2, he says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, when you look at that verse in your Bible, those words at the end there, where it says the entire Roman world, the word Roman is not in there. It just originally the language just says a census should be taken of the entire world. Because if you're living in the empire, it feels like the empire is the whole world. You don't talk about the Roman world. It's just this is what Rome wanted to, to people to think and feel and believe that Rome is the world and the world is Rome. It was this all consuming, defining reality for people's lives, living within this vast, vast empire. And at the top of this whole empire was one guy, one single solitary leader, Caesar Augustus. And he's not just mentioned here as kind of an historical little reference point. He's got a role to play 
in this story. Caesar is a massive historical figure. If you ever studied this part of history, Caesar Augustus, he was the first official emperor of the Roman Empire. The empire had had rulers before, but Caesar Augustus was the guy who, who kind of marked this transition from, from Rome just being a single political entity to being an empire, this vast, expansive, massive empire that absorbed all these other nations within it. So Rome would just keep on conquering more and more and more nations, pushing their borders further and further and further. They took up a huge part of the Middle East, huge part of Europe, huge part even pushing into North Africa. This was a massive empire, and Augustus oversaw the whole thing. He was, above all, a military guy. Augustus was a military man. He rose to power through murders and assassinations, and his mission was to push out the borders of the empire conquer more and more nations, and then stabilize and secure the empire and bring this cohesion and order and stability to it, which he basically did. But he was obsessed with the military power and might of the Roman Empire. Now, as we know from international politics today, if you're going to have a massive army like Rome did, what are you going to need a whole lot of? Money. And, and Augustus knew this. So where are you going to get your money from? Taxes. You are going to tax the bajingos out of people in order to fund your army so that you can be the, the superpower and sub, subject everybody else. And that's exactly what Caesar did. And so what are you going to do? What are you going to use to figure out your tax system? A census. And, and so we get to the Christmas story. This is the first thing that happens. The very reason that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, historically speaking, is because of a census that forced Joseph and Mary to go there because you had to go to your hometown to register. But that census, it wasn't just one of these things where you, you count people so you can release nice information on the ethnic makeup of who's living where. This was about control. This was about taxing people so you know how many people you've got, so you know what they own, so you know how much you can tax them, so you can fund your army, so you can be the biggest show in town. So there's this strange irony to it that you've got Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem, Jewish people who are already an occupied people. So they're already under the control of Rome. They're going here to fill out a census so they can pay more tax, so the Roman army can maintain its hold over the Jewish people. It's like they're participating in their own kind of oppression, but they've got no choice. This is just how it was. This is how life was. You didn't have a choice. You don't object and resist to these kinds of things, or else you don't want to be on the wrong side of Rome. And so you start the story in the beginning of this chapter with a reminder of the dominance of the Roman Empire, with all the power and all the authority and all the prestige of Caesar Augustus. And the, and the vast authority and dominance that the Roman Empire had over the entire, almost the entire known world at the time. But then, as the story progresses, as the, as the story of Jesus' birth progresses, you have this contrast with all of that. You have, on the one hand, Augustus at the top of the pile, the top of the social hierarchy, 
But then you start to have the story where Caesar is kind of bypassed in favor of really, really lowly and powerless and marginalized people who come into the fore and become the main participants in the story that God is bringing about. God's not gravitating towards the one in power. He's gravitating towards those on the fringes of power, on the margins of power. And he's giving them a role and he's lifting them up and giving them an awful lot of prominence in the story. People like the shepherds. You think about the shepherds. If Caesar is at one end of the social hierarchy at the top, the shepherds are at the bottom. The shepherds are peasants. These guys are at the bottom of the whole socioeconomic ladder. They were peasants. They didn't have much money. A lot of people that were farmers in this day, eventually they got taxed so much they couldn't hold on to their land. So they had to sell it and then they hired themselves out to look after other people's sheep. That's probably what these guys were doing. So there's a good chance that these shepherds on the night Jesus was born were looking after these flocks of sheep that weren't actually their sheep, probably belonged to some other more wealthy farmers. But these guys were hired hands, largely unskilled laborers. They're looking after a bunch of sheep. They're having to work the night shift. They're working on Christmas Day. That's pretty rough. But they're, they're doing all of this as people really at the bottom of the whole kind of social hierarchy of things. Total contrast with where Augustus sits in the picture. And yet it's these shepherds that receive this incredible angelic announcement of a king who has been born, a Messiah who has been born. And I want to look a little bit more closely with you at some of the words that the angels say to the shepherds because they are loaded with meaning and nuance that we don't always catch on the surface of it. Look at what the angels say to the shepherds in verse uh, 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Now, the words good news, that is the, that's the Greek word euangelion. And most of the time in the New Testament, it's translated as gospel. So whenever you see the word gospel, behind that word is the Greek word euangelion. And it's not just a Christian word. It doesn't just describe the Christian message. It's a word that could be used of all kinds of good, particularly military good news was described as a gospel. And guess where this word crops up? Euangelion. In reference to Augustus. Let me read you an inscription that has been found. Archaeologists have dug this up and it was written by someone about the emperor. This is like a little piece of Roman propaganda, imperial propaganda about how wonderful the emperor is says this, the birthday of the God, and he's referring there to Augustus, referring to the emperor who is considered to be a God. We'll come back to that. The birthday of the God was for the world, the beginning of his good news. And there's that word, euangelion, gospel. So what, whoever wrote that, what they are saying about Augustus is that when Augustus was born, when the emperor was born, this was the beginning of the gospel. This was the beginning of a great age of prosperity for the empire, for all peoples. Augustus brought about the good news. And so in view of that, when that is your backdrop, can you hear the significance of what the angel is saying to these shepherds? When you're in this world of the Roman propaganda machine, can you hear a little bit more clearly the significance of what's being said here, that the angel is saying it's not Caesar who brought about the gospel, it's not his birth that brought about the beginning of the good news, it is this child. It is this child born in the most humiliating and undignified circumstances, but it's this baby whose birth 
marks the beginning of the real gospel, the real euangelion, the truly good news. Because Caesar's good news is only good news if you're a Roman. It's only good news if you're a Roman citizen and you've got the power and you've got the rights and you've got the passport, or they probably didn't have passports, but you know, you've got the means and you are on the winning team. But it's not good news for everyone else. It's not good news if you're a Jew. It's not good news if you're a subject people in a client kingdom. It's not good news for them. And even the good news that sees abroad, it's only good news in a, in a material sense, in an economic sense, in a military kind of sense. But here's Jesus coming as the bearer of the true gospel, the eternal good news, the good news of reconciliation with God, the good news of forgiveness, the good news that there has been a victory that is being won and will be won over all the powers of death and sin and darkness. You're excited about that, aren't you? I can tell. Yes, it says good news. We're going to get excited about this. It is an incredible thing that the angels are announcing, and it's a dangerous thing because you don't say things like that in the Roman Empire unless you want to end up on a Roman cross. But then the angel keeps going. He says, not only... Is there good news? But here is what the good news is. Verse 11, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, there's three titles used there. Have a look at these for Jesus. Savior, Messiah, Lord. One of them is a specifically Jewish title. That's Messiah. That's really for the Jewish people looking at Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's great story, the king, the true king of Israel. But the other two were not specifically Jewish titles. They had currency throughout the Greco-Roman world, and guess who they were used in reference to? Our friend Caesar, good old Augustus. These are titles that were used of him, both saviour, which is the word soter, and lord, the word kurios. Caesar Augustus was the saviour, considered himself to be the saviour of the world by bringing peace, by unifying the emperor, by, being, by bringing prosperity, by putting down all these different uprisings and usurpations. He was the saviour of the world. And he was considered to be Lord, kurios. I mean, you could use the word Lord of anyone who was a higher rank than you, anyone of a higher class than you. But right at the top of the pile was the ultimate Lord, Caesar Augustus, Lord of all. And Caesar was so prominent, so victorious, such a domineering leader that people came to think this guy is not just a man. He's a God. Only a God could do what Caesar is doing. And so begins the official religion of the Roman Empire, which was the cult of emperor worship. And this was the official religion of the Roman Empire until it became Christianity, hundreds of years later under Constantine. So the Romans didn't really care which gods, other gods you worshipped, but the one god you had to worship was Caesar. And you had to burn a little pinch of incense every year, participate in these festivals, and you had to say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord, and pay homage to the emperor as the god, or at least the son of a god. But either way, a divine figure, a divinely instated figure. This is how Caesar was seen. He wasn't just a head of state. He was revered as a god. He was revered as a divine figure. And so again, can you hear the subversive message that the angels are saying here? 
that it's not Caesar who is the true savior of the world, and it's not Caesar who is the world's true Lord. It's Jesus. It is this child who has come to bring real salvation for all people. And it's this child who has come as the world's true and rightful Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. Right? That's the implication. See, right at the beginning here of the Gospels, there's this, it's like a collision course that these two are on, Jesus and Augustus. They never met. And Jesus didn't come as a political activist. But you can see, you can hear the message, can't you? He wasn't anti-government, by the way, Jesus. But he was opposed to those who set themselves up in a place that only God has and claim power and authority for themselves that is rightfully only God's. And any empire that does this, they, they set themselves up against God's plans and purposes. There is only one true Lord, and it's Jesus. And ultimately, that is played out on the cross, where Jesus is crucified on a Roman cross, and yet, from that position of shame, weakness, powerlessness, he wins a massive, cosmic victory over all powers, all authorities, including the empire of Rome. Even though the empire continued to stand for centuries, its power was taken away. Its power in God's eyes was utterly defeated because the world's true Lord and ruler, Jesus, had come. So you can hear, I think, the, the message of what the angels are saying. Most clearly, if you place it against the backdrop of what was being said about the emperor and what was being said about the empire, at the time. And there's one more thing these angels say, which is really the climactic statement. It's so climactic that the, at this point, the angel gets joined by all the other backing singers and he gives this message to the shepherds, the final climactic statement. He says in verse 14, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That phrase, peace on earth, is really the most important phrase. And that word peace is the most important word because it was a word so strongly associated with Augustus. You know how uh, leaders, heads of state, people want to leave a legacy? You know how people get to the end of their, their time in office and they talk about what legacy am I going to leave? The one legacy that Augustus wanted to leave was peace, as he defined it. He was so big on peace this came to be known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That Caesar, he did bring about, most historians agree, he brought about a couple of centuries at least of relative peace within the empire. He stabilized it. He prevented big-scale wars from erupting, major usurpations of power. He brought along this cohesion, this stability, this peace. But of course, it was a peace if you're on the right side. It's a peace for those who are in power. For the Jewish people, like Mary and Joseph, did it feel like peace? What did it feel like? Oppression? Injustice? Occupation? It felt like they were under the boot of a foreign power, and they were. It wasn't peace for them. There's a really interesting little quote by a Roman historian. This is a Roman historian called Tacitus, who was also for a time a Roman senator. And he writes about this peace, this Pax Romana that Augustus brought. He says this, The Romans call it empire. It is in fact murder and rape and profit. They make a desolation and they call it peace. There had certainly been peace, but it was a bloodstained peace of disasters and assassinations. That's the peace 
of Augustus. That's the peace that he brought to the world. And yet here we are with these angels singing over the fields of Bethlehem, a song about a new kind of peace that has come into the world. Not the Pax Romana, not the peace of Augustus, but a new kind of peace. And this peace is rooted in the Hebrew vision of shalom. Shalom is a much older Hebrew word. It's all through the Old Testament. And it's this vision of peace as God sees peace. Not a human vision of peace, but, but God's vision of where eventually he is taking the world and the way in which one day God is going to bring a peace to all things, to all people. One author describes this peace, this shalom, as the universal webbing together of God and humanity and creation in mutual fulfillment and delight and justice. This beautiful vision of shalom where there is going to be reconciliation, reconciliation between people and God, reconciliation between people and one another, reconciliation even between people and creation, this big scale peace. See, we, you and I, we see peace on earth written on Christmas cards. And what do we think? It's like that warm, fuzzy peace in your heart. You know, we think of peace as a, as a thing you feel. Feel at peace. Feel like I've got a little tingly feeling in my tummy. I feel this peace. But that's not, that's not shalom. That's not biblical peace. Shalom is huge. It is expansive. It is global. It is this peace where there is human flourishing and wholeness and delight and healing. And evil is absolutely expunged from creation. And the prophets longed for this. Israel longed for this all the way, preceding the coming of Jesus. Let me just read you one passage from Isaiah, where the prophet Isaiah longs for this kind of shalom, and God gives him a vision of what this will look like when peace finally comes about. In, in Isaiah 9, Every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. In other words, an end to violence. And then the more familiar verses straight after that. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. I read that first verse to you because I know the rest of it's familiar to most of you, the, one, the bit about unto us a child is born. I mean, we say those words at Christmas time, don't we? That's the Christmassy passage that we all know and love but just before that there's this passage about every warrior's boot and every garment rolled in blood is going to be destined for burning destined for the fire because this peace that Jesus brings is in opposition to hostility and aggression and the violence that plagued their world and plagues ours it is a real peace that comes into human relationships and will fundamentally change the way that individuals and groups of people relate to each other. That's shalom. Jesus came as the Prince of Peace to bring about that kind of peace, that kind of world, a peace that goes across all kinds of social barriers, a peace between groups and communities and countries and nations and tribes and communities, people who will love each other. And yet it's not that stereotypical peace. It's not the Miss Universe world peace kind of stuff. It's not the Michael Jackson heal the world kind of peace. It's, it's, it's real, earthy, gritty peace between people and God and even creation, all triangulated together in this beautiful relationship of oneness and wholeness. That's the peace that Jesus came to bring about. 
Uh, when he came into the world, when Jesus was born, it's not as if that peace suddenly erupted onto the scene. I mean, Caesar was still in power. The empire was still there. Now, things didn't suddenly dramatically change, but Jesus' birth was the promise of shalom. Jesus' birth was a sign that one day, that peace, that vision of shalom that Isaiah saw, that other prophets saw, one day that shalom is fully and finally going to be implemented right here on earth as God comes to dwell among his people. One day that shalom will be the way things really are. And I think it's helpful. This is part of the Advent season. Is to imagine what a world full of shalom might actually look like. What would a world look like where that, that message that the angels gave, peace on earth, actually comes true? Because one day it will. And this is where we need a bit of biblical imagination. Because you look at the year that's been, and it's pretty hard to imagine that, isn't it? You look at the, the shootings in the States, you look at the Paris attacks, you look at the seemingly endless rise of ISIS, it's pretty hard. to. I mean, everything seems the opposite of shalom in some ways. And yet scriptures call us to allow our hearts to be captured by a vision of a world where shalom prevails. A vision of a world where the, the proclamation of the angels is fulfilled. And God's peace truly comes. It's not just a little peace in our hearts. It's not just a Christmas card greeting. It's not a little platitude that Christians say. This is real shalom that is coming into the world and will one day be here. Let me read you uh, one guy's attempt to describe a world where shalom prevails, where shalom reigns. John Ortberg, uh, he wrote a wonderful book called Everyone's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. It's a good read. And he describes this world of shalom. He says, in a world where shalom prevailed, all marriages would be healthy and all children would be safe. Those who have too much would give to those who have too little. Israeli and Palestinian children would play together on the West Bank. Their parents would build homes for one another. In offices and corporate boardrooms, executives would secretly scheme to help their colleagues succeed. They would compliment them behind their backs. Tabloids would be filled with accounts of courage and moral beauty. Talk shows would feature mothers and daughters who love each other deeply, wives who give birth to their husbands' children, and men who secretly enjoy dressing as men. Disagreements would be settled with grace and civility. There would still be lawyers, perhaps, but they would have really useful jobs like delivering pizza, <laughs> which would be non-fat and low in cholesterol. Doors would have no locks, cars would have no alarms, schools would no longer have police presence or even hall monitors. Students and teachers and janitors would honour and value one another's work. At recess, every student would get picked for a team. Churches would never split. People would neither be bored nor hurried. No father would ever again say, I'm too busy, to a disappointed child. Our national sleep deficit would be paid off. Starbucks would still exist, but would only sell decaf. I don't know about that. Divorce courts and battered women's shelters would be turned into community recreation centers. Every time one human being touched another, it would be to express encouragement, affection, and delight. No one would be lonely or afraid. People of different races would join hands. They would honor and be enriched by their differences and be united in their common humanity. And in the center of the entire community would be its magnificent architect and most glorious resident, the God whose presence fills each person with unceasing splendor and ever-increasing delight. It's beautiful, isn't it? 
It might not be exactly your vision of shalom, but it's part of what this season calls us to do, not just to think back to the birth of Jesus, but to think on to his second coming. One day Christ is going to appear and he's going to bring about this kind of world. Maybe different details, but the shalom will be there. Peace between us and God. Peace with one another. Father, Son, and Spirit in the center of it all, giving and receiving love to one another and to us who belong to them. That's shalom. That's peace. We've got to allow that kind of peace to capture our hearts, to do something to our souls, because this is why Christ has come. This is what the angels have proclaimed. And even now, God is at work bringing about little tastes of that shalom, little glimpses of it. They're hard to see sometimes, but God's not waiting until Jesus returns to bring about all of his shalom. He's already started. He started that night over Bethlehem. He brought the first installment of it then. And ever since, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, is breathing shalom into the brokenness, into the, the darkness of this world. Just whispers of shalom. We saw one of those this year. You remember around the time of the Charleston shootings? That awful event in the States where uh, this guy Dylan Roof came into a prayer meeting, sat through most of the prayer meeting, and then gunned down nine people, killed nine people. And at one of the early hearings, court hearings, after that event, uh, Dylan Roof was in another room, but he was on screen there, and the judge took the step of allowing some of the victim's families to speak to him and to directly address him with a series of victim statements. I want to just play you briefly just a montage of those statements and the extraordinary words that were spoken to him in that time. Can we play that? So there's peace on earth. Just a taste of it, just another little whisper of it. But when those words are spoken, uncoerced, unforced, unmanipulated, we saw shalom. We saw a little piece of peace on earth. And most of us, thankfully, won't be called to anything quite that dramatic, but we need to reflect on what shalom looks like in our own lives. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for you, even in these next few days, to bring a little bit of God's shalom into the world, to be a little bit of the fulfillment of the angels' words over the fields of Bethlehem, peace on earth? What does it mean for us to be ambassadors of shalom? to be God's agents of shalom. It's not always going to look dramatic. It may look very, very ordinary. It may look just completely normal. It may be as simple as you just reaching out to someone this week who's lonely or who's being forgotten by other people. Reaching out to someone you know around you who's just going to struggle their way through this week. Maybe for you things are good and fine and it's a week of celebration. But for those who experience pain, and some of you are in this category, for those of you who are, who are struggling away, this week tends to turn up the volume on that pain, doesn't it? It tends to amplify. Christmas tends to amplify the things that we struggle with. Is there someone around you? Is there someone that you're aware of that you could reach out to? Just extend a little bit of shalom. Would you do one thing? Would you send one text message to someone who's battling, maybe financially struggling, maybe in just a relational mess at the moment, maybe struggling with health, who you know is just going to have a hard time of it over these next few days and possibly on Christmas Day? Would you do one thing? Would you send them a card? Would you visit them? Or would you take some baking around to them? Would you reach out to them in some way? Let's not just be so trapped in our own stuff and in our own bubble and so caught up in our own lives this week that we fail to hear what the angel said and fail to outwork it in our lives that God is bringing peace on earth, but he's wanting to bring it 
through us. He works through us. He works through our lives. So could you, in a really ordinary, everyday kind of way, bring a little taste of shalom into somebody's life this week? And when you do that, just know that if you do it in Jesus' name, if you do it as a follower of Christ, you're not just being a good Christian and you're not just spreading a bit of Christmas cheer. Anyone can do that. You're not just participating in a secularized vision of Christmas. You are bringing about shalom. And one day somehow, I don't know how this is going to happen, but one day even those smallest deeds that you do and those little tiny acts of faith and hope and love, one day they're going to be caught up and swept up into the great big shalom that God brings about on planet Earth. One day, even those small deeds will find their way into the glorious future that God's preparing for us. Are you willing to be an agent of shalom, to be part of the answer to the words the angels spoke this week? So as we journey through the next few days and through Christmas Day and the craziness of it all and the busyness of it all and the silliness of it all, and it is all those things, and that's wonderful, but let's allow our hearts to go back Let's allow our hearts to go back to the fields of Bethlehem and try to hear afresh the words those angels spoke to those shepherds that night, full of meaning, full of power, that the gospel has arrived in the birth of this child, Jesus, that the world's true saviour, true Lord, and the bearer of God's shalom has entered into our world. It's an extraordinary thing. Allow your heart to be captured by it, but don't stay there. Allow your heart to be captured by the future vision of Shalom because we live between the two advents, don't we? The first advent of Christ, which came 2,000 years ago. The second one, which is coming, Lord, please hasten the day when it comes and Christ returns. But we don't know when it's going to be. But Jesus will come again and he'll come not as a baby in a manger. He'll come as the rider on the white horse with the armies of heaven behind him to establish the Shalom of God on this earth. So let's long for that day. It's what Christmas is. It's a longing. It's what Advent is. Our hearts should be pulled forward. And then in the present, let's ask ourselves and allow the Spirit of God to prompt us toward those small acts of shalom in the present where we just bring about a little glimpse, a little foretaste, a whisper of the great chorus of shalom that one day all creation is going to sing. May we be people of shalom this Christmas. Amen. Let's pray. So Jesus, just in the quietness of this moment, I just want to allow you to remind us again of the miracle of your coming into this world and the extraordinary thing that you came as Prince of Shalom, Prince of Peace. Father, we long for peace in our world. We feel like the world is becoming a more unstable place, a more unsafe place a more uncertain place. And really all we can say, Lord, is come, Lord Jesus. Come and make all things new. Come and return to claim your creation, to claim your people and bring your shalom. But we thank you that you are, God, and I pray you'd give us the eyes to see it. Give us the eyes to see where shalom is already entering into our world. This week, Father, keep our eyes open to those little traces of your peace in our lives and the lives of our our family and friends. And God, even now we pray that you prompt our hearts and minds with those ways that you might be calling us to extend your shalom to others. We thank you for the amazing privilege of being instruments of your peace, instruments of reconciliation, 
And God, whatever way you want us to outwork shalom, whether it's through forgiving someone, whether it's through pursuing reconciliation, whether it's simply through loving and serving and praying for someone. Give us the courage to take that on board and to be an agent of your peace this week. We pray in Christ's name. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.